Chapter 7 It took another hour to locate the stream. It was more like a rivulet where I joined it. The pleasant rippling sounds had led me to imagine something more promising, but I couldn't allow myself to be disappointed. I worked instead on feeling grateful for what I'd found. After drinking as much as I could by scooping the water into my hands, I kicked off my shoes, stripped to my waist, and set about using some fist-sized rocks to dam a small pool. It felt like an achievement to be able to control the flow of the stream. As I worked, I realized casually that although I knew next to nothing about myself, I was nevertheless drawing on some kind of experience of life, as if I'd done this kind of thing before, on a beach somewhere, when I was a kid maybe. As soon as the water was deep enough to splash, I washed my face again, then my upper body, then I took off my socks and put my feet in. Sitting there, with my feet in a muddy pool, rips in my rolled-up trousers, scratches and bites all over my chest, I must have been a sorry sight. But it was as close as I could get to feeling blissful. The water was beautifully cold. It felt like melted snow, making my skin tighten. My feet were numb in no time. I indulged myself as long as I could, pushing away the urge to move on losing myself in the stream as it tumbled gently down the mountainside. When a fly popped onto my nose, I let it stay. Barely opening my eyes, I could just make it out, rubbing its hind legs. Once again, I concentrated on the murmur of the stream and the coolness over my body. By now, my feet were actually aching with cold, but it hardly mattered because this was the best thing that had happened to me so far. There was a crack in the stillness then, possibly something breaking a branch as it moved. Someone creeping along, I thought. I turned and peered into the forest, twisting my body right round. My feet knocked into the rocks I'd stacked, and the pool emptied. My stomach muscles were tense, and my eyes darted from place to place. It was obvious there was nothing coming at me, no animal or person that I could see. After a moment in that position, fixed and ready for danger, I felt able to relax again, but I remained alert. I scratched my nose, splashed more water over my face, under my arms, and felt the ache in my right arm as the fingers of my left hand brushed against it. I raised the arm and stared at the spot that was so painful, prodding it, kind of goading it to be as disagreeable as possible, making myself wince as I did it. I'd been aware all day that there was something wrong with this arm, but until then I hadn't remarked how localized the pain was or how extreme it could be if I just touched it. I'd already begun to heat up after my watery reprieve. The idea that soon I would be dry and hot again agitated me. I put my shirt on, doing up the buttons absurdly carefully. There wasn't much left of my shirt. Dirty, torn, it still felt damp with sweat, especially over my back. Even so, I went right to the top button, 
and when that was done, I put on my tie and made sure it was on straight. It was important at that moment, I felt, to keep up appearances and self-esteem in case I was being watched. It also helped me to think. It occurred to me then, as I had no means of carrying water, that I would have to stay close to the stream. But rather than climb with it, which would have been the steepest path upwards, I planned instead to take it in zigzags, back and forth across it, climbing the slopes by degrees and never wandering too far from the only source of renewal I had. I tied my jacket around my waist, challenging myself to keep it there for as long as I could. A challenge of this sort seemed a good way of distracting my thoughts from further pangs of anxiety. I could have abandoned the jacket, but I imagined that if I couldn't find help by nightfall, I would need it for warmth. The solution of wrapping it around my head to deter insects was far from perfect, but I knew I would have to resort to that again sooner or later as it got hotter. I thought the game of having to keep it tied around my waist might prolong the moment before I lost my grip altogether. I was already quite afraid by then. The notion that I was being watched or followed intruded more frequently as I pushed on. Either there was someone watching me, or it was an animal, or maybe the whole forest was seeing me. The forest sometimes seemed eerily like an entity, or an adversary, there for me to do battle with, as if there could be no other purpose for a forest. I found it difficult to separate this kind of fantasizing out from the possibility that someone or something hostile might be tracking me as I climbed. I must have crisscrossed the stream half a dozen times, weary and brutalized by hunger. The hunger and heat were drying me out, causing nausea and headache. Once in a while, I wondered if I was ready yet to kill a squirrel or a rabbit and eat the meat raw. I knew one more day of this and I would be faced with that kind of prospect. My problem lay in the timing. Did I leave it until I was too weak to catch anything worth eating? If I did that, I would be forced to rummage for worms and bitter chestnuts left over from the previous winter. I'd come across a few such chestnuts, the ones even the squirrels wouldn't touch. I'd nibbled one and knew they were rancid, if not indigestible. The other option was to relax my mission to climb upwards out of the forest, in favor of finding something solid to eat right away, while I still had the strength. It was difficult enough formulating the problem, getting my brain to put it into pictures and make it coherent, especially as I was having to suppress the acute worry that I'd been misguided in my decision to climb the mountain in the first place, and that I was missing something vital in all of this. I could just about ask questions, but that was as far as my thoughts would take me. I'd set myself on a course of action and was unwilling to contemplate the answers to any questions that undermined this. I never once called for help, even when it felt like all my hard-won advantages might be slipping away, I kept silent. My shoes, hardly designed for mountain walks, had begun to come apart by mid-afternoon. The sole on the left shoe was flopping where it had become detached from the leather. By then the heat was heavy and penetrating again, 
casting its shimmer over everything. The insects were atrocious. They seemed to thrive on high humidity and the temperatures and me. I was tempted to talk to myself and did say a few things out loud then. But as soon as I heard my voice trumpeting through the silence, my nervous laughter circulating through the trees with nowhere to go, I would stop and listen, hands out for balance, slowly scanning my surroundings. I saw things as well. They must have been the darker shadows and movements, only shouting distance away, behind any number of bark-worn pines, so straight and high. I heard a sound like hissing, constant and low, made all the more faint by a bumblebee scribbling its way past me, and the burble of the stream, always nearby. At some stage I heard a cuckoo again. The mechanical and childish call of the bird calmed me. Involuntarily I twisted one of my shirt buttons, for luck. Chapter 8 Teresa Heller was enjoying the feeling of nothing to do. She got up from the sofa, wondering if it was the right moment to call her mother. She'd been meaning to call all week. The house felt alive and well, with everyone doing something useful. Even Barry was at home. Sunday afternoon would have been the ideal time to call. Teresa could hear Barry outside with the lawnmower. He'd employed someone to do the garden, but the man had fallen off a ladder and sprained his wrists and didn't think he'd be able to work for another few weeks. Anya was in her room in full battle dress for the weekend, to Barry's dismay. Teresa thought it might be the association with gothicness that bothered him so much. Not just the music and the clothes, and the sneers that went with them, but deep associations with the word, and a guilt so well concealed even Barry didn't realize it. Anya was doing her homework. That in itself was an achievement. Nobody had forced her to do it. It had been a voluntary decision announced earlier, and one of those little signs, Teresa thought, that things were getting better. She would point it out to Barry when he was finished doing the lawn. Because Anya was so off meat these days, Teresa intended to cook fish again for supper. Fillets of John Dory, grilled in lemony butter, she was thinking, with new potatoes and steamed French beans, lightly seasoned. Jamie wouldn't be too pleased, but he rarely made a fuss. That's what was so nice about Jamie. And Barry always said he couldn't get enough fish. So that was fine. In an unusually airy mood, Teresa trailed her fingers along surfaces glossed in brilliant white, then turned to go upstairs. She wanted to see how Jamie was occupying himself. He'd been silent for over an hour. She hoped he was doing his homework, like Anya. That would be bliss, she thought imagining her son at his desk, his nose in an exercise book. Because Jamie was still young, she could permit herself to have daydreams of academic excellence and finally a place at only the best. Teresa's father had been an ailing Devon farmer. 
He'd constantly cajoled her and her brother to get proper educations and find themselves a better kind of life. It disturbed her, halfway up the stairs, holding on to the banister, the thought that her father's aspirations were working inside, still pulling at her wherever she went. Having caught herself thinking about her desperate father, Teresa had to remind herself to see things in a balanced light, the way they actually were. She breathed deeply, breathing in the grandeur of her present, living in a detached Victorian villa surrounded by lawns, and the amusing folly, a tower at the corner of the house with turrets and a flagpole everyone talked about and tourists took pictures of. Teresa's was one of a number of homes in the area built in the spirit of whimsy. It was a place that had been nurtured and encouraged through ten years of married life and had more than trebled in value since she and Barry moved in. Putting her home at the heart of everything reassured her. Context is everything, she thought at last. Barry was in the garden, Annie was doing her homework. Jamie was no doubt tinkering on a new tank he'd bought, using his own money. He would be ruining his eyes on a scale model of a German panzer to add to his already mighty armory. Teresa decided not to venture into his room. It would only put her in a mood. On her way down the hall, she wondered why boys had such a fascination for war. The pieces were spread over his desk. Jamie was studying the assembly instructions, building up an already recognizable section with its swiveling 75mm high-velocity gun. It was going to be a Tiger 131. He picked up the long 8.8-centimeter barrel. He was just about to attach it, holding it close to his eyes, looking at details around the funnel, and trying to imagine what it would be like to command a Tiger, a real battle going on outside. He made himself smell the smoke and the sweat, and heard the men shouting commands. He heard each loud thud every time they let a shell go. It's not that he would have fought on the German side himself. That would have been inconceivable. As the son of an American, Jamie would have been part of the Allied advance, pushing down from the Normandy coast. But his curiosity about what it might have been like in a tiger during a tank blitz blended with an inherited shame. His great-granddad, Ernie Ernst Heller, still only a teenager then, had fought in the American army. Jamie knew of him as a war hero, wounded in the chest at Arnhem. There was some family story about Ernie going into battle hand-to-hand -hand with bayonets. It was difficult to reconcile the fact that someone from Germany who spoke the language should be allowed to fight along U.S. soldiers. It was something Jamie couldn't imagine without confusion. He couldn't easily picture his great-granddad climbing into a ruined building, intending to kill a bunch of enemies, when he was one himself. Anya was all in black. Black tights and a black jumper, she'd weighted down almost to the knees with little chains, as well as silver ornaments of bones and skulls pinned to her black clothes. She was furious as she walked up to Jamie's door and went in. 
She'd been trying to draw a girl on fire running along a hillside, but her reds and oranges had all been snapped into tiny pieces. Jamie sensed it was her before he turned to look. Anyone else would have knocked. What do you want? All my pencils have been screwed up. What are you talking about? Someone broke them all and left them in the wardrobe. Shove off, Anya. Jamie had just glued the big gun to the turret section of his precious tank and was trying to hold it steady there. He didn't want to shout or make any sudden movements, but he denied the thing about the pencils as vehemently as he could. I'm not blaming you, Anya said. Yes, you are. As they looked at each other, reality seemed to turn a notch the wrong way. It was like being hypnotized and waking up disoriented, both of them not knowing where they were. They had the same idea at the same time, that breaking a bunch of coloring pencils and hiding the evidence was just the kind of thing their father might like to do during one of his turns, and the look between them said it all. Jamie indicated with his chin. My pencils are over there. Anya went to his chest of drawers, but didn't open it. She could see something out of the window. She leaned her head too far over. It was something so gripping she couldn't move or speak. Jamie sensed a problem. What is it? he asked. At that moment, Teresa had decided she would file her nails. She could hear the lawnmower outside. The faint mechanical chugging gave her a warm feeling. This is how it should always be, she thought. Barry Heller with his sleeves up, doing something practical for once. The kids were getting on with their schoolwork. They were good kids after all, she thought. They would go far, and Barry may have a strange way about him, but he's a fine man who would never lose sight of what was important. Teresa wasn't really fooled by these mental slogans, though. She knew all too well what the background to her thinking was. Over recent weeks, she'd had two agonizing talks with her friend, Camilla Binden. Once in a restaurant, and more recently, when Teresa had popped across to ask Camilla for sugar, and David had been there. Having moved into a flat in Clapham with the woman he said he loved, David Binden was now driving back and forth between North and South London, partly to visit their children, but mainly to collect his things. The chill of that last meeting still haunted Teresa. How often had she popped over the road in the normal course of events? David seemed so completely unashamed of himself, his good looks and charm making the twist in all their lives vastly more corrosive and Camilla's sore red eyes that were just the tips of her. Today, in her own home, Teresa understood that being especially proud of her family was as much a fear of what was happening to Camilla as it was any sense of genuine pride. Her mobile was right in front of her. She sat by it, filing her nails, but couldn't bring herself to call her mother in case her mother heard the tremors in her voice. Outside, Barry wanted to make the grass look perfect. It would be like the tennis courts at Wimbledon or the putting greens at Pebble Beach. He wanted it beautifully and evenly clipped, with not even a smidge sticking out. 
Little flowers and such, in his opinion, confused the eye. He had a pair of jeans on, with his pipe tucked safely in the back pocket for later, when he could light up and survey all he'd done. It went well for a time, passing up and down the side of the house, over to the shrubs and trees and back. He had to stop to empty the cuttings in Teresa's composting bin, and then onwards, behind the rattle and clatter of the engine and the reek of petrol, his efforts producing a kind of dizzy happiness. He'd completed about a third of the area that needed cutting when he spotted a daisy he must have missed on a previous pass. Without considering, he changed course, making directly for the daisies sticking out. There were lots of those little bastards around the place, and Barry was determined that not a single one should get away with it. He destroyed the daisy, but in doing so had made a vertical strip across his path that didn't seem to go away no matter how many times he tried to neaten it out. There was nothing he could do to retrace his steps. As the lawnmower's wheels gouged wild lines in the grass, Barry's hidden feelings of loss and helplessness escalated until there wasn't any point anymore. He no longer thought about which way to conduct the lawnmower. He could do circles and zigzags if he wished. He could pop wheelies. As long as the fucking daisies and dandelions weren't sticking out when he was done, he could get there any way he wanted to. And what a joy it was! What greatness, he thought, to let go of yourself. He would never have guessed how liberating this could be. It made him laugh like a madman. It was hilarious. He grinned as he snaked the lawnmower into the trees, bumping into the trees, but chopping down those creepy little flowers all right, and then back onto the lawn, under a cloudy sky, really going to the apes now. He tried pulling the lawnmower backwards. He could do that too, with his eyes shut. It was ridiculous, but a fine feeling, doing so erratically, something that ought really to have been done in controlled horizontal strips. The fact was, Barry could do anything now. That's what it amounted to. It extended to anything he said or anything he did. His kids could come running out of the house, waving their arms. And if he wanted, he could chase them with his lawnmower. Black Anya could try pulling little Jamie out of the way, and little Jamie crying would be a shame, but Barry could leave the lawnmower behind if he wanted. He could leave it churning behind him. He could chase the kids with his hands, chasing them in and out of the trees. He could bend down and throw clumps of grass clippings at them. He could throw grass clippings into the air. He could spread it all over his face, then eat the grass, then go do something else remarkable. Yes, Barry could do whatever he wanted. Teresa could come running out too. She could be shouting, Stop it, Barry! And that would indeed be frustrating, but it wouldn't matter. You can't deny something that already exists. You have to accept it as reality. Barry could run after Teresa, trying to explain it to her. It would be terribly funny to see her expression when he told her what this was all about. The way her jaw would drop and she would yell at the kids to climb over the fence and call for help while making up tender things to say to him. Just like a lark singing and flapping in order to distract a predator from finding her nest. <laughs>